Welcome to the Escaping Enemy Mode podcast, a podcast to help you recognize when your brain is treating others as enemies to be defeated instead of as people to be loved. With neuropsychologist Jim Wilder and Brigadier General Ray Woolridge, we'll discover the ways that Enemy Mode sabotages our best intentions and we'll find pathways together to refriend the people around us. Let's get to work. Well, good morning, friends. It's a delight to have caught my colleague, uh, Dr. Naomi Paget, join us for our podcast today. Naomi is a thought leader in disaster relief chaplaincy and many other fields of study. Um, she's deployed to every named disaster you can think of to help help first responders and help victims. Uh, she was at she's been at mass shootings. She's been at nuclear reactor events. She's been in, in war torn areas around the world for many decades. And she's joining us from Texas. And she's also a seminary professor. And and uh, we we've worked closely through the years. Naomi, it is a delight to meet with you today. Thank you, Ray. It's good to be here. And, and I want to thank you for your generous time for today, but also the generosity of your time when we were doing the research for our book, Escaping Enemy Mode. And uh, given your your personal story, I, I'd love to talk to you about the impact of enemy mode and race and enemy mode and status. Now, to set it up for our listeners, brain function suggests that anything that feels like a status challenge can become the fastest trigger for a brain to go into enemy mode. And of course, a brain in enemy mode will attribute enemy mo- enemy motives to others, even where there, there are none, where none exists. So Naomi, let's first talk about how can race trigger a status challenge, even where none is intended? Well, I definitely think that race can do that, especially because our brain stores past memories to protect us in the future. So when some racial issues arise, especially during a vulnerable moment, when we immediately go into survival mode, then these racial issues and threats are remembered and activation of what you identify as enemy mode goes into effect. And I think that there are times when we have been uh, hurt because of our race and some of these racial issues. And if we have been hurt in the past, well, immediately we're going to go into um, this thought that we're being attacked. And when we're attacked, uh, we want to protect ourselves. Uh, That's natural survival for us. So definitely, I think race could trigger that kind of change. Now, Naomi, how dangerous and harmful are these types of enemy mode reactions around the issue of race? Well, I think these could be anywhere from annoying to life-threatening. It would depend on how we have dealt with these threats in the past. Successful resolution of past threats inform us on successful possibilities and expectations in the future. So it's not going to be as threatening. However, if we did not have successful resolutions in the past, our threat is even greater because the risk seems greater. No one wants to re-experience pain, uh, regardless of what kind of pain that is. Now, we, we talked when we were doing our research for the book about your your childhood growing up in, in a, a rural area in a small town in the South. Uh, would you care to share a story or two about how you personally experienced this and how this shaped you growing up? Well, I think because of the fact that I am Japanese, I'm an American citizen, but Japanese heritage. After World War II, it was very, very difficult 
to be Japanese and exist in a world where being American was so important. So, of course, uh, being Japanese meant uh, we had to hide the fact that we were Japanese in some sort of way, and we had to do everything we could to be as American as possible. That means we had to be the very best at speaking English with no Japanese accent. Uh, we had to study hard, uh, do all the things that Americans were supposed to do. And certainly in the 50s, you were supposed to go to church, you were supposed to get educated, you were supposed to obey your parents and follow all the rules. Well, that's exactly what my parents expected me to do, simply because we had to be the very best Americans that we could. Now, interestingly enough, growing up at that time in um, Texas, uh, we lived on the Mexican border. So Spanish was the language that I needed to learn to speak, and that became our everyday language. We only spoke Japanese in a hidden context in the home and learned English in school as a third language. So did race play a part in all that? Well, absolutely, because we were the enemy for many who had suffered terrible casualties uh, during World War II. And then much, much later in my life, even as I studied to become a professional chaplain, um, I was sent during a residency to a VA hospital. And uh, VA hospitals are full of veterans. And certainly by the 60s and 70s, there were lots of uh, veterans from World War II in VA hospitals. Well, my first day in the hospital, I was told, um, after you learn the setup of the hospital, knock on a few doors and introduce yourself. So I did. I knocked on the door. I stuck my head around the corner and I said, hello, I'm Naomi. Would you like a visit? And the man sat straight up in bed and he yelled, get that Jap out of here. Oh my gosh, I was so scared. I looked around and I looked for the Jap and then I suddenly realized I'm the Jap. You see, this is a very Japanese face in the context of a veterans hospital where somebody had experienced horrible, horrible things during World War II. Uh, probably in the Pacific, fighting the Japanese. Well, I would think that in that moment, enemy mode was definitely triggered for that poor man. And I was as distressed as he was, because in my role as a chaplain, my task is to lower stress and comfort people, not to raise their stress. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, even my race became an enemy for me. Um, because all of a sudden, I didn't want to be Japanese. Um, I wanted to be very American. So I think enemy mode could be for the victim as well as for the perpetrator when we realize that we have become the enemy. Well, in that moment, of course, you were new in your career formation and you were still learning to navigate uh, these complexities. How did you reset yourself after that incident? Well, you know, my grandmother was not a PhD, but she was an amazingly um, wisdom-filled woman. And she taught me this principle of assuming positive intent. Well, in those days, that was not um, a word or a phrase that we used very much. But what it really did was to teach me to think that people are doing the best that they can in the circumstance. And if I could remember 
that people are doing the best that they can. They're not trying to hurt me or react negatively to me because I'm trying to do the best that I can too. So when I think about assuming positive intent, it keeps me from entering enemy mode because I think self-regulation is a skill that we all need to develop. So even as I learned to do that for myself, I began to have a lot more grace for people who were in enemy mode. The fact that they were reacting based on experiences that they had already had. So I think that um, a huge part of my life today is to begin to teach people something about how to deal with that enemy mode that does become a part of their life and to teach them how to self-regulate using uh, this positive intent, assuming that people are not trying to hurt them, but that people are reacting simply because they themselves feel so threatened. So um, I, I know for me, I have learned to do more self-regulation using an internal locus of control rather than letting the outside world Mm -hmm. totally control how I'm going to react to every possible thing that happens. Well, it's beautiful. Now, your grandmother also taught you deep breathing as a young girl. Yes, that was kind of amazing. Um, Every time I got upset about anything, she would say, Nami-chan, which is my Japanese name with a little ending that makes me be the little girl. She's Nami-chan. And in Japanese, she would say, take a deep breath and count to 10. And every time I count to to 10 today, I think about Nami-chan, take a deep breath and count to 10. (laughs) And it still works. That's beautiful. And now we know what that's doing with serotonin in your brain and how that's helping you stay relational. You're resetting yourself. You're calming down your amygdala and a lot of other good things. Yes. And going back to a positive memory, my grandmother, Mm -hmm. uh, who was so important and influential in my life. That's beautiful. Let's shift gears a little bit. Um, Some people lower the status of others. And others raise the status of others. And of course, status fights like this are predictable to send people into enemy mode reactions. So where have you seen that? And, and where have you seen the, the ones who lower and the ones who, who, who put down? And, and what are those differences between the two? Well, I think sometimes um, lowering the status of others is about uh, dif- disenfranchising people. Uh, The fact that we think that either their race, their religion, their personality, their social status, uh, that those things are not as important or valuable as other people's. So we disenfranchise it. We make it be less than it is. So I think that some people um, are not victims of somebody else disenfranchising them, but I think they disenfranchise themselves. I think that sometimes people allow ourselves to be disenfranchised because we don't have a self-image or an identity that we believe is really valuable or worthy. And uh, maybe that comes from uh, our upbringing, our heritage, or maybe it's from the media that keeps portraying some people in such a poor light. So 
some people do lower the status of others. And I think sometimes, you know, coming from a clinical perspective, I think if we can lower the status of other people, then we feel like we are more important. And I think that might be one of the ways that it happens. On the other hand, I think that some people lower their own status simply because um, they have not developed a positive self-image. And a positive self-image doesn't have to be that you are terribly rich, famous, creative, intelligent, talented, or anything else. That you could be all right, satisfied with who you are and find value in who you are, purpose and meaning in your life at whatever point you are. So... Um, do I think that some people raise the status of others? Absolutely. And I believe that that happens uh, through this idea of assuming positive intent. I don't believe that people are intentionally trying to be mean, wicked, cruel, evil. Um, I don't believe people are really trying to do that. I believe that people are doing the best that they can. And sometimes they come from a life history that doesn't allow them to be better than they are. We know that uh, even adverse childhood experiences impact adults in terrible ways. And many of those childhood adverse experiences are not things that children did to themselves. Um, it's the context in which they were raised. So they became victims even before they had an opportunity to be able to decide for themselves who they were going to be. So um, I think my faith also allows me to help raise the status of others um, because I could see people through um, a different set of eyes, not just my limited vision and perspective, uh, but from the perspective of a divine God who sees people as being valuable, all people, not just some people. I think my experience has also taught me that when others um, when I have been, when I've made some of the worst mistakes and not been the person that I should have been or could have been, when other people have given me so much grace and they were able to accept all of my gifts of imperfection. And I think they raised my status in those times. You've given us so much to think about. It's always a delight to talk to you and our listeners will benefit greatly from from your insights. Naomi, God bless you. And thanks for the time today. Thank you, Ray. Ray, thank you so much for that interview with Dr. Naomi Paget. Um, just so grateful for her voice in this conversation and the way that she is able to help us kind of get a window into enemy mode and race and how that affects the way that we view the world. Um, just as I was listening to the interview is seeing how we often en enter enemy mode when we feel like our status is being challenged. And so Jim, I had a, a question for you. How, how does the brain process a status challenge? Well, the answer is that it processes it very quickly. It's a 40 milliseconds, very, very fast response to uh, someone's uh, perceiving someone's status. And it's not very well studied how it, where it goes from there. Um, but essentially, the way the brain responds to a status challenge 
is by feeling the other person is not on my side. Uh, and mm. so uh, that very quickly puts the brain into, I have to power up and uh, make them lose uh, as the priority, as opposed to one of compassion, which says, um, mm. I need to uh, really understand what's going on for them um, because their status is, is uh, you know, they, they must feel their status is low or they wouldn't be challenging mine. Hmm. And Ray, I realize this is kind of a, a difficult question, but from your conversations with Dr. Paget, why, why do you think that race is such a trigger for status challenge? Well, there's a lot of history and trauma there. Mm. And, and uh, our, our unique national history puts this right before our eyes in the news regularly. Naomi's mm. personal history, Dr. Paget's personal history, I mean, her grandparents and parents lived in the relocation camps during World War II. Mm. They were in California and all Japanese on the West Coast particularly were suspected of being collaborators with the uh, Empire of Japan. And so they rounded them up and put them in camps. Mm-hmm. And so that was her family story. She was born after the camps. But then, then she moved to South Texas, a small town in the Rio Grande Valley near the border. Mm-hmm. And she told me I had to learn Spanish <laughs> and English, but we spoke Japanese at home. But we wanted to be the mm-hmm. most American Americans. Yeah. So um, here we are, three uh, white guys talking about race, and I think our role is to recognize it in ourselves, to recognize our history, but also to support those who have encountered, who's, who's lived histories different than ours. Mm-hmm. Now, I've experienced this a tiny bit myself uh, in a status situation after I got out of the Army. I went into the Texas Employment Commission to get a job. And uh, greeting me was a retired sergeant who was Mm African-American. And he interrogated me on what exactly, Kent, do you know how to do? And and I felt felt like uh, my status was being challenged, but he was right. My practical skills were pretty lacking, and he took advantage of that. And Mm -hmm. I went home and felt humiliated. So Mm -hmm. I know a tiny bit in that instant what it felt like. I would have to say, though, that... uh, from a look at the science, the uh, reaction is not automatic. Status uh, challenges are not automatically bi- biologically tied to race. They're mm-hmm. tied to some kind of uh, generally early experience. So people who grow up um, in multiracial environments do not have the same reaction um, in their mm-hmm. in their minds uh, that they do other- otherwise. And uh, the degree to which, um, you know, it starts with fear, right? You know, the degree to which we feel that kind of fear is actually a learned behavior. Myself grew up in a multi-racial uh, environment. I have uh, mm-hmm. one, um, uh, two African-American grandchildren, one um, uh, Asian uh, grandchild, and one Hispanic grandchild. And mm. my initial responses are attachment responses. Mm. Uh, I feel a sense of warmth when I see people from those groups because I learned to grow up with a, those attachment responses already programmed in. So a lot of this has to do with our, our with our early learning and as Ray points back to our history. Mm-hmm. Um, and when our history is 
uh, one of uh, not seeing uh, the the racial variations as my people, uh, mm-hmm. then we've got a very different response going. And when it does trigger, it can be very, very, very detrimental uh, to uh, tie uh, race with with uh, you know that is somebody whose status. Um, I need to lower really is what the brain mm-hmm. is saying. And that, mm-hmm. that is, that is incredibly harmful. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a different culture, a majority white culture. And then I joined the army where the color that what we, here's what we said. The color that matters is green. We're all in the army together, but mm-hmm. living that out was a challenge as we've talked about in our, and I entered the army same time as uh, our, our friend general Dana Pittard did. And we talk about him in the book. And he experienced a, a very different re- reaction to his skin color that was detrimental early on in his career, especially. Mm-hmm. And Ray, I think that's why I'm so glad that you were able to to interview Doctor Doctor Paget because we're we're able to to see things from another person's perspective, mm-hmm. and to be able to hear hear those stories. Um, from the way that they see things. I think I also grew up in a white majority culture and it's very, very hard. I mean, I would say it's impossible to be able to look outside of your own lived experience um, without the help of somebody else being able to come alongside you and help you see the world in a way that you've never seen it before. Mm. Um, And when Naomi was talking about her experience in the VA hospital, it was really both gut-wrenching and heartwarming. Hmm. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit more about what that was like um, and why, what is, how does her response in that VA hospital teach us about enemy mode in ourselves and also about how status and race affect our daily lives? Well, I, I've been the, the chaplain walking through the door in a hospital to, to greet someone that uh, I don't know. And when you go through the door, you don't know what you're going to receive. You don't know if they're going to be even awake, much less willing to talk or even accept a prayer from you. Mm. And, and in her case, she goes through the door and the minute the man sees her face, she's the enemy. Mm-hmm. And she was a brand new chaplain in training. And it's impressive to me, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's a humorous, uh, you know, he's, you know, he said, uh, used a racial epithet against her mm-hmm. and told her to get out of here. And she thought, wait a minute, uh, who's he talking about? Hmm. Because she did not view herself as, as the enemy, as the other. Uh, and then she realized, oh, wait a minute, I have a Japanese face. Hmm. Now, the, the impressive thing as well is she knew he was wounded she knew he was coming out of his own place of pain that had triggered him into, she wouldn't have called it stupid enemy mode at the time, but that's what it was. But it was probably also attachment pain on his part. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, she was able to reset herself quickly. So I don't know if I answered your question or not, but she, she, it was amazing to me that she was, and I'm sure that, you know, one of the things when you're a VA chaplain, you're writing, a, 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 you're writing about your experience with every visit for your supervisor mm-hmm. to help mm-hmm. you get better. And I'm sure she wrote a lot about that one. And how did she remember who she was after she mm-hmm. left the man's room? And how did she reset herself so she didn't respond back to him in the same enemy mode reaction he gave her? 
Yeah. And that's what was so remarkable to me as well of like just putting myself in that situation. I would have been very reactive of get like, I didn't do anything to you. I didn't cause this problem for you. And it's like, I'm getting all of this heat for nothing. It feels Mm -hmm. like from my perspective. And yet she was able to, it, it almost seemed like immediately see through the pain of the other person and see a real person on the other Mm -hmm. side and was able to, to remain relational in a way Mm -hmm. that was really quite remarkable. Well, I liked the way that she um, responded by uh, in the interview by owning that the conflict with the Japanese had been a uh, very painful and dreadful one for the soldiers involved with it on the Pacific Hmm. uh, uh, part. And uh, I think if we're going to look at how we're going to overcome things, it's very important maybe to take a lesson here that we really need to own our own part in whatever has been the past uh, that um, Mm -hmm. uh, goes into contributing to this. And she demonstrated uh, owning uh, the the past or the horrors of it. But at the same time, uh, she also talked about how uh, because of uh, the prejudices against her, she had had to separate her own identity from being Japanese. And mm. that that's a tragedy on the other side of things. And that is, she knew she was very well so far uh, removed from being Japanese that it didn't even cross her mind that she would look Japanese walking into the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so when we force people to uh, isolate their identity that far away from, uh, you know, their history, we're doing people a real disservice as well. So that there's both sides of that. There's, um, you know, she had a very clear sense of who she was, but it was hard for her because of her upbringing to incorporate um, her own history, her own ancestry. And uh, and so, again, to be able to see people uh, as someone we attach to uh, means to really get to know who they really they really are. And mm-hmm. she seems to have a particular gift to be able to see who people really are underneath, uh, past their reactions, uh, even pretty intense reactions on the surface. And that makes her a good chaplain, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think of another story that she told um, about her grandmother. Um, just thinking of how how she's able to remain calm and to act like herself. Um, and she told the story of her grandmother telling her to to take a deep breath and count to 10 when she was starting to get overwhelmed. And it seemed like that was just such a powerful experience and tool that she could use throughout her life. And I, I, we talk about breath all the time in this podcast. Why is that that tool be given, being given to her inner childhood from her grandmother, such an important one that served her through her whole life. Well, I'm just going to give the, the lay answer and then Jim can talk to what the brain's doing. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it works. And, and uh, of course, Asian culture, uh, martial arts culture, um, uh, the breath is paid close attention to mm. and her grandmother, I don't know where her grandmother learned that. But man, that helped Naomi center herself and and not you know uh, lose it in those moments when she was overwhelmed. Now, Jim, I, I know serotonin is being produced in the brain when that's happening, but what else is going on? 
Yeah, you're also letting that initial surge of adrenaline wash out and um, kind of get all the circuits running again with that counting to 10. Um, and during counting to 10, you have a chance to, to re-notice who you are because um, you're paying attention to your own body. I'm a person in a body over here. And uh, by by doing that, if we know who we are, we have a chance to rediscover that and to think to ourselves, what would be a good way to express myself? And it takes the brain about six to 10 seconds to figure that out. And mm-hmm. so the, the timing is good. You're going to just let the brain uh, recycle. It's sort of like a quick refresh of, of let's get the circuits all running again. Uh, it lets you look at the situation that threatened you and say, okay, the threat is always something that comes from the past, interestingly enough. So it's a memory. And we get mm-hmm. to ask ourselves the question, is it happening again in the present? Uh, and so um, very often we realize that the thing that, that really started off the, the threat is something that isn't as strong as it appeared as at first. The, you know, our mm-hmm. threat systems are just like... Um, very loud alarms to make us check it out. Mm-hmm. And so 10 seconds while breathing, it's like, all right, our brain is releasing the right chemicals to quiet us, which breathing out especially does. And uh, so a nice long exhale helps us quiet and remember who we are and get refocused again on, on how big is the threat and what would it be like me to do uh, that I'd be proud of really right now. Mm. Uh, you know, and the funny, interesting thing, we've done this with our grandchildren, even when they were very little and, and they wouldn't understand the words we were using. Yeah. But, but we just started doing deep breathing with them in our laps. And after a little bit, they start mm-hmm. following our lead and they start doing it too. Mm-hmm. If, if they will sit in our lap and stay there, sometimes they'll right. squirm off and run away, but if they'll sit there and stay there and, and after a few minutes, they quiet themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, so it's modeled, and then later you can explain what's happening. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, uh, bre- it's fairly contagious. It is, and of course, deep breathing does it. There are other th- practices that Jim has been teaching us to do. Uh, we call it shalom, mm-hmm. my body. But uh, you know, the startle reflex, yawning, lots of thing, other things invo- invoke the vagus, the vagal nerve. Yeah, and I'm I'm so glad you've we've been able to talk about the importance of breath. That. It reminds me, Ray, I've actually started doing some of the box breathing exercises myself and for my kids. When I see they're getting overwhelmed, it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. let's try and recenter our breath and get pay attention. And I wonder, as we're kind of closing out the interview, can we let's try this together with people who are listening, because I want to get people to feel what this is like to take to breathe in and hold your breath for 10 seconds and just start incorporating this practice into their own lives. It's never too late. We've got a a clock running that we can all see. So I think maybe we can take a deep breath in, hold it for 10 seconds, breathe it out. All right. So we're going to take a deep breath in now, and then we're going to hold it for 10 seconds. A lot of th- a lot of times, what Jim models has modeled for me is when you breathe, when you're exhaling, say say something positive, and it could be a scripture, 
when I'm afraid, I'll trust in you, or it could be happy birthday to me, or <laughs> it's a beautiful day. Anything mm. that brings joy to your face. Mm. That is such great wisdom. For for the last question, I wanted to end in the same place that Naomi did. She closed the interview in such an important place, talking about how she was transformed by people who, when when she had made her worst mistakes, still showed her grace and still accepted her along with her imperfection. And Jim, I wanted to ask you this. Why is why is that such a gift to a person to be accepted as they are mistakes and all? Well, there's a brain level answer and there's a spiritual answer to that. And uh, the brain level answer is kind of obvious, but we don't think about it. The brain is best at learning, isn't it? And so when someone makes a mistake and we say, uh, I'm going to accept that as a mistake and not who you really are, we're letting the brain learn. And the brain learns when the consequences are not terrible. So we're going to say, we're not going to make the, we're not going to make the, these consequences worse for you. We're going to let you learn. And the brain loves that. It says, okay, I can become my best self. I can get better than this. Uh, you know, given more time. And then from a spiritual point of view, it is pointing to the fact that uh, people are really not the sum of their mistakes. They're the sum of their best selves. And so mm -hmm. we're saying we're, we are giving you uh, recognition that all of us uh, can blow it when it comes to being our best self. And uh, so uh, let's try this again. Uh, let's have a do-over. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a beautiful place to end this episode of the podcast. Um, thank you, Ray, so much for, for the interview. Big thank you to Dr. Naomi Padgett and for all of the, the wisdom and insight that she brought for us today. So a big thank you to Naomi. And next episode, we are looking forward to a fascinating interview that Ray has with a police officer about how enemy mode affects their line of work. We hope you'll join us then. You've been listening to the Escaping Enemy Mode podcast. To learn more about the book by Dr. Jim Wilder and Ray Woolridge, visit escapingenemymode.com.